It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to have a sit down with some of the East End's award-winning journalists and dig a little deeper into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here. And uh, with us today, Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. Uh, we have Christine Sampson, who is the deputy managing editor at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Hey. Good to have you. Thanks. And uh, our own our own Annette Hinkle, who is the arts and living editor at the Express News Group. Hey, Annette. Hey, Joe. How are you? Good to have you here. So let's, uh, let's start talking about uh, Juneteenth, which is coming up uh, in the next uh, couple of days. And, uh, you know, we had a story in that from our Michelle Charing, who did a Q&A with Brenda Simmons, who is the executive director of the the founder of the African-American Museum in Southampton Village. And I thought it was really interesting that that her point is that Juneteenth is a relatively new holiday in the sense that nobody really learned about this holiday for the longest time. And and she made the point that even in the black community, when she was growing up, um, you know, it wasn't something she learned about in school. So th- this is something we're all sort of uh, adding and, and, and the towns and villages are starting to uh, add it to the calendar now, but this is a relatively new development. Yeah, there was, um, there was actually a really interesting art exhibit in Sac Harbor last year about Juneteenth. And they had um, at the, they had it at the church in Sac Harbor. That's the art space that's been um, created by April Gornick and Eric Fischel. And they brought in um, a woman, uh, Leslie Stratford, whose father actually, parents actually owned the Stratford Hotel in Oklahoma City where Juneteenth happened where the um the riots happened that killed um many black residents and and lots of others were forced to flee so that was really interesting because this was her grandparents and she had created these artworks that incorporated old photos from her family with um images from um the riots and um that was sort of i think the first time that a lot of us in this area really kind of delved into what it was what it was all about and yeah it's kind of amazing that something that massive could happen and just be so erased from that was the, the tulsa riots right the tulsa yeah. riots that's yes exactly the tulsa riots which is a, a little different from juneteenth but yeah exactly people didn't know about it people weren't talking right. about it. yeah but i think that that whole idea of all these 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 episodes where people don't know anything about um the history and suddenly right. it's coming to light so um so i thought that that was kind of an interesting side exhibit that that got into the whole idea of um of of these hidden hidden histories that yeah, we there's so about. much lost history um and and juneteenth is is part of it chrissy juneteenth is can you can you give us a rundown of what juneteenth is yeah sure so juneteenth is um it marks the date in um in 1865 when the last of the enslaved people in texas which is the last state of the confederacy back then with institutional slavery so june 19th 1865 was the day those last enslaved people were freed um and uh you know like you said not a lot i didn't learn about that in school when i was growing up um and a lot of people didn't um but you know there's there's one group here in east hampton who wants to change that which is the Guildhall teen arts council uh you know the plain sight project as well but this, did you guys hear about the stepping stones um project and the markers of enslavement project in east hampton Tell us about it. So uh, the Plain Sight Project and Guildhall Teen Arts Council, um, they teamed up to make um, bronze markers to be set into the ground where um, where we know people had been enslaved. So, for example, um, outside on the public walkway outside Mulford Farm, there is now a brass brick in the sidewalk. It's like a, a brick inlaid with brass and that's engraved with the name Sharper who was enslaved in the 1700s by Matthew Mulford. Mm. Um, And so, you know, that's just one example. There will be five others placed around town in the ground, but it's modeled after the stepping stones in, in, uh, in Germany and Europe after World War II, they did something, you know, basically they did that um, to mark where people had died in the Holocaust. That's really important. I, I think, I think the work that that uh, David Rattray, your colleague at the Star, 
and Donna Marie Barnes are doing with the Plainsight Project is really amazing stuff. And it goes to, to Annette's point, which is so much of this history, and especially on the East End, uh, we don't, we, we don't, we have never really celebrated black history on, on the East end. And I don't think most people are even aware of all of that. And I think, I think David and Donna Marie's efforts to make people aware of the fact that there was slavery on the East end yeah. is just essential to understanding who we are, you know, we who live here now. I think that's really important because, you know, like a lot of times people say, well, the slavery was a Southern problem and they, people sort of turn a blind eye to the North's role or complicity in slavery. And I think that that's a really interesting point is that we were always taught that that was the South's problem. They did that. We didn't do that. But then you realize how many, you know, people made a lot of money from the slave trade in the North, you know, even after it was outlawed here. Um, so I think that's the other thing is kind of a wake up call for people that think that that they come from a region where slavery is not an issue or never has been. And, and you know, speaking of wake up call, you know, the, the Teen Arts Council, the Guildhall Group, um, they went so far as to write an entire magazine about how they were influenced by this, by learning about this, because, you know, they didn't learn about it in school and they learned about it from David and Donna Marie. And um, so the Guildhall kids published their second edition of Teen Zine yesterday and it's folded into the East Hampton Star as a magazine. Um, and so I just hope you guys check it out because it's a lot of what the youth in our community are feeling and, and experiencing about and around June, Juneteenth and, and slavery. Oh, that's terrific. What, I, would like what a to great add idea. I think this is a perfect example of why it's important to revisit the way we teach our own history, American history to our students in school. Absolutely. I mean, all this stuff about, you know, this backlash that's been fabricated about critical race theory, you know, uh, that everybody's against, you know, certainly in these parts anyway, we, you know, our state legislators, a lot of people in the community. And, you know, it, this underscores why it's so important, because frankly, we are all just so ignorant of real history because of the way it was taught to in school and has been taught in schools to us. And I think, you know, this just really underscores that. Like, I mean, the fact that, you know, it took a Union Army general to go down to um, Texas. To, I forget the town, but Gal you know, to, to Galveston, thank you, to, you know, to say, hey, slavery ended a little while ago, guys. You know, this was months after the Emancipation Proclamation. So, I mean, and, and we're not aware of that. And I think we're similarly ignorant of the impacts of, you know, slavery locally, as well as, you know, the, the whole Jim Crow law, you know, impacts um, where all of the advancements in the in the wake of the, the Civil War um, were reversed. And, you know, everything things kind of went backwards because of who was elected mm -hmm. and what he did, the president, uh, you know, and that and how everything just got reversed. And the people that were, you know, the black people that were elected to Congress after the Civil mm -hmm. War, you know, ended up because of Jim Crow and because of voting restrictions, ended up being unelected, <laughs> losing their seats and how it was, you know, decades and decades, 100 years before there were, you know, voting rights protected in, in the United mm -hmm. States again. And, you know, the worst part of it is, Denise, that I think we're all aware that um, critical race theory, CRT, is not something that's ever been proposed to be taught in American public schools. It's, it's something that, that exists at the upper reaches of acad academia. But what's happened is it's become a slur that you use exactly. to label any effort to discuss our country's racial history. And, and so anytime you want to, to try and, and look in the eye, you know, some of the ugliness of our past, critical race theory is, is what you hear. But Wow, it's just amazing how much that takes off the table. And I, I'm ashamed to say, going back to Annette's earlier point about the riots in Tulsa, I, you know, I was watching HBO's The Watchmen, right. the first episode of that, and thought, oh, what an interesting, you know, what an interesting fable here. 
and and had to read articles that said this is actually act what happened. This this happened, and the fact that I had never heard of something that significant uh, is just stunning to me. And 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 it feels like a failure that that we need to address. Denise, the local governments have started now um, making Juneteenth a holiday. It seems to me there was a bit of a scramble, Bill. Uh, we were talking about that. There, there was a little bit of a scramble to make Juneteenth a holiday. Uh, in some of the towns and villages, right? Yeah. Well, I we, we we got press releases this week saying offices would be closed on Monday. Juneteenth is is the nineteenth, which is Sunday, but they're going to close on on Monday. It, it, it seemed to me that that was a quick decision, and um, some of that I, I think probably had to do with the employee unions and that not being included in their in their contract. And I think both East Hampton Town and Southampton Town mentioned in their press releases that that the town, even though it wasn't in the contract, they were doing a they had come to a one year agreement with the unions to allow, um, you know, employees to to have a, a paid day off. So maybe that had something to do with it. Although you would have think this became a federal holiday last last year, you would think that they would have had plenty of time to uh, to work that out, even if they're in current negotiations with with the unions. I don't want to make it about, you know, about the unions, but it, it, it seemed like it was kind of a scramble. But both towns, East Hampton and Southampton, um, uh, will be closed. You know, town halls will be closed on 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 Monday, and and it's a, a paid day off for for everybody there, a, a, as it should be, right? Rightly as it should be. It's a federal holiday now, and and a good day to uh, to reflect and re- remember on that stuff. I think then, it's similar something similar in Riverhead, right, Denise? That was one I wanted to ask Denise. Well, how did I, Riverhead handle the, the interesting thing is that when something is made a state and federal holiday, as Juneteenth was a state in twenty twenty federal last year by enactment of legislation signed into law by the executives, right? It's not just a proclamation or something. But the interesting thing is that municipalities do not have to say, oh, we're going to close on that. Right. You know, um, you think, okay, it's a holiday, it's a holiday, but it doesn't work that way, apparently. So, um, you know, yeah, it, this was not in the, you know, obviously it was not in contract and uh, collective bargaining agreements with the various unions and, and the municipalities because, um, you know, some of those contracts or many of those contracts predated when these these um, this federal holiday was declared. Um, so that was the response that we got when we started asking Riverhead, hey, well, how come, you know, we're not closing on, on Monday? Um, that, well, it's not in the union contract, so therefore, you know, we're not closing. Now, you know, governments like to be able to negotiate days off with unions in exchange for things like, right. you know, other other kinds of givebacks or whatever, and, you know, percentages of their health insurance premiums or whatever. So it was kind of like giving up sort of a bargaining chip, which they all said, we're doing this for this year only. Right. Um, but I mean, you know, Riverhead was the last one that I know of anyway, to the to the table with this. Um, they announced uh, after defending not not closing to us for, you know, for a couple of days this week uh, after five o'clock yesterday, we got or at five o'clock, we got a press release saying that they would be closed. And um, when we uh, talked to a town official, I said that they'll be adopting a resolution on um, Tuesday, ratifying this. Uh, Southhold is also closed and they, they announced that earlier in the week or at the end of last week. I'm not sure about Shelter Island, but I think, you know, I said that it's just really kind of uh, tone deaf that nobody was thinking about this. And I think that again, you know, it's kind of like, you know, look at the composition of these town governing boards that make these decisions. You know, it, they're, it's not on their radar just because no. they're like we are a bunch of white people, you know, and it's just not on their radar. And, you know, one thing that struck us as we were trying to uh, write a story about how the town was not doing this in Riverhead was the lack of um, a groundswell of people, you know, jumping up and down or even noticing this. I mean, including the Eastern branch of the NAACP, um, the East End Voter Coalition, um, other black community leaders, the uh, Riverhead Antibiotics Task Force. Um, and, you know, we were calling people to say, what do you think of this? 
and not really get, either getting no response or, you know, oh, I'll let you know, kind of, mm -hmm. from people who we thought would be advocates for the towns honoring this holiday. Um, now, you know. Why, why do you think that was, Denise? I mean, you know, I'm not sure. I really am not sure. I mean, I always have a sense that a lot of people don't want to rock the boat, you mm -hmm. know, like um, the, the, the people that should be like, you know, the loyal opponents of something or advocates of something else are, are quieter than one might expect. Um, I don't know if it I don't know exactly what the source of that is, but. Um, we find that over and over again, not just with um, issues of, of racial parity or anything either. Um, so um, I, I'm not sure, but that's what we were finding. And I mean, you know, like I said, the NAACP, the uh, Riverhead, Riverhead based African-American cultural and educational festival. Um, you know, we we called all over the place and um, we're getting very uh, sort of um, lukewarm. I don't know, like not really, it didn't seem like something they really cared about that much, but I can't believe hmm. that to be true. Conversely, I wonder were there anybody that came out of the woodwork complaining that this was being done? I have, we did not hear that. Okay, and well, I don't know, good. you know, I didn't look at whatever comments happened on Facebook after we posted a story that they are closing. But, um, you know, I just, um, you know, it's, a, it's an important step, I think. And I think that, you know, the town, the town, I feel like was pretty tone deaf to this, but I would say that this is not the only thing the town officials tend to be tone deaf about when it comes to issues outside of their immediate world, the yeah. town hall and zoning and things like that, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I can't say it's a race based, but, um, you know, gee, on the, on the flip side, Riverhead, had, you know, community members in Riverhead with the East End Voter Coalition, which was a group formed by some folks in Riverhead years ago, um, they've been honoring and you know having the Juneteenth um, uh, celebrations for since at least like 2000, 2001, um, where they've had barbecues. Um, it's morphed. They, you know, they had a thing at the at the park on Ludlam Avenue, Ludlam Park. They had a thing at Stotsky Park and. They've had programs at the um, Riverhead Library. Uh, Riverhead Public Schools have done Juneteenth um, programs. And uh, there is a well-established since at least 20 years now, a Juneteenth essay contest at the Pulaski Street School. So, I mean, there are things in the community, but it's just, you know, the I've, I've, the government, I feel, has lagged behind when, you know, it comes to, it comes to that. But things have happened organically. So... Hopefully this is a change that lasts and that it gets put into the collective bargaining agreements going yeah. forward. And we're not having this conversation again next year. Yeah, we had we had heard from from one source that there was a lot of um, back, backdoor calls between the different municipalities. Hey, are you closing on Monday? Are you closing on Monday? And, <laughs> like a snow and, day with the school. And, no, you know, exactly. And, and so maybe, you know, it, Maybe it, it caught a lot of people by surprise, but I don't think that's a, a, a valid excuse. And as you were saying, Denise, if, it, if it's if it's not on the radar, then then, you know, maybe there maybe there's an issue there that this should have all been, you know, formulated and, and thought about um, months and months ago, I would I would think. So we should put in a plug. There are some events. I know that. Uh, Chrissy in East Hampton, there's an there is a celebration of Juneteenth, uh, and in South, uh, that's I I don't have the details in front of me, and I don't know that you do either, uh, but I was going to say I think the Southampton African American Museum is sponsoring those events. I know that there were some on Friday night, and there's a barbecue on Saturday in Southampton Village, and the details for those events are at uh, saamuseum.org. Uh, for people who want to find out, but I know there's a big event on Saturday in Southampton, and I believe there's also something in East Hampton on Saturday. There's an event at the Riverhead Library. Oh, sorry, Chrissy. I was just going to say that Saturday at 10 a.m. is a Juneteenth commemoration at the Lieutenant Lee Hayes Youth Park in Amagansett. Yeah. And then on Sunday in Herrick Park in East Hampton Village, there will be a Juneteenth celebration from 2 to 4. 
So it's good. Have you, have you have you library, if I could just make a plug for that, uh, yeah. the Antivirus Task Force and the East End Voter Coalition have partnered on um, an event there. There's going to be some performances and a keynote speaker. And also the Suffolk Theater's got some neat things that they're presenting in, uh, to commemorate Juneteenth. One is a, uh, well, this is too late because it's Friday night, a retrospective of the heroes of black music. And um, on um, Sunday at seven o'clock, a night of soul honoring Juneteenth with uh, Brian Owens. And uh, he's going to be featuring music from musicians such as Marvin Gaye, Al Green, Sam Cooke, and Dobie Gray. So the, that those sound like two really good programs that are not necessarily, you know, what we think of as historic things, but celebrating black culture. It's good and, to and see Joe, that. Joe, you had you had mentioned um, you had mentioned Brenda Simmons, and on Sunday, um, Ms. Ms. Simmons, along with uh, Southampton Village Trustee Robin Brown and Dr. Georgette Greer Key, who is the executive director and chief curator of the Eastville Community Historical Society, will all be um, will all be honored um, by Black women in media. Um, an, an organization, um, you know, of, of as described, black women in media. They will they will be um, honoring them, and then um, festivities later that day um, abound, including uh, tours of the Southampton African American Museum and other um, uh, other commemorations. And you, know, you can look on Twenty Seven East for uh, for that story as well. It's great, great to see the region finally, um, you know putting this on the calendar as a, as an important holiday to, to mark uh, and to both celebrate and to use as a, a learning opportunity. This is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and Ed Hinkle, who's our colleague at the Express News Group and Christine Sampson of the East Hampton Star. So um, Christy, let's, uh, Let's talk about the gubernatorial primaries that are coming up. I believe the, the date of the vote is June 28th, but voting, actually early voting begins today, Saturday, I believe, right? Uh, both parties' uh, primaries are, are happening later this month. Absolutely, yeah. So June 28th, but early voting is beginning. Um, and so Governor Kathy Hochul and Representative Lee Zeldin are comfortably ahead of their respective challengers, according to polls um, from Emerson College, The Hill and PIX11, um, which surveyed 500 like very likely I put, you know, air quotes around very likely voters in both Democratic and Republican primary elections. Um, and so Governor Hochul, you know, who was, you know, she succeeded Andrew Cuomo when he resigned in August. But she has the support of 57% of Democratic voters polled. And her two challengers, Rep. Tom Swazi of um, New York's 3rd Congressional District and Jimmy Williams, the New York City public advocate, 17% and 6% respectively, with 20% undecided. Um, and on the Republican side, Mr. Zeldin, who has you know, obviously been reelected a few times to that 1st Congressional District, um, he has 34% of very likely voters in that poll. Rob Astorino, Harry Wilson, Andrew Giuliani, they are also, you know, in double digits of support, percentage of support, but 22% are undecided um, among the GOP likely voters. Interesting. Um, and, and I think there's another stat in there that's worth pointing out uh, that could, could be interesting, which is that uh, Governor Hochul's job approval rating is only 41 percent in in general across the state so you know i think most most observers think that, that'll, that'll go up a little bit this week i, I mentioned before we, we started <laughs> recording that that uh, property tax uh, one one time only one year only property tax rebate checks went out to uh several million new yorkers this week me me included i, I got mine and not that that's going to sway um how I would vote, but uh, I think it, it could certainly sway some people. You're so jaded, Bill. I know. Um, I think it's interesting <laughs> that that the governor doesn't have a higher approval rating. And so most observers, I think, and I'm one of them, think that it's 
highly unlikely that a, a Republican candidate like Lee Zeldin or even Andrew Giuliani, uh, I think just about anybody on the Republican side, they are not moderate type candidates like George Pataki, who ran uh, some time back and, and won the statewide race. Democrats have such an overwhelming you know, majority of the registration. But when you look at the governor's approval rating at 41%, you start to say, hmm, if people vote with their pocketbooks and if a lot of people stay home from the polls, uh, you, you've been telling me all along that, that, that uh, you think it's going to be a bigger race than, 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 uh, than it appears. You're looking at me. Yeah, I'm looking at you because you keep saying. Look, I don't. I I think nothing is guaranteed. I think you're right with, um, you know, with with inflation and and talk about either, um, you know, talk talk about you know the the economy and and all the supply issues and and all that stuff and and uncontrolled. But but look, you know, the I, I think there are certainly voters who come out to vote just on the governor's race. But let's remember that this is also a midterm election. There's going to be a, a huge drive from the right to get voters out to to try to gain control of the House and the Senate. And those those seats are up. And, you know, and and, and people are dissatisfied with you know, you're not voting for president, but people are voting dissatisfied with the current administration because of the economic issues um, and all that. And, and it always comes down to who gets the vote out. And, you know, and, and you're going to see a, a huge drive from the right to, to get people out to vote and Democrats. And, and, and I love you, Democrats. But but in the past, you haven't done a great job all the time with getting people out to vote. And, and that's critical. So, you know what I'm curious is like, let's say that Lee Zeldin is the Republican candidate for governor. Um, you know, how about those those upstate New York folks? I mean, Hochul is uh, from upstate. Will Lee, would you think Lee Zeldin would have a hard time um, convincing upstate voters to vote for a Long Island guy? And would Hochul, in a way, stand a better chance even getting Republican votes in upstate New York? Because they- I feel like I feel like Lee Zeldin's laid down the framework now to be more than just a Long Island guy. He's more yeah. of a national figure at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he's I think that was strategic. Denise, you wanted to say something. Yeah, he has spent a lot of time upstate, too. A yeah. lot of time since he uh, started exploring his candidacy at first. Um, I'm definitely in Bill's corner on this, Joe. Sorry. Um, I think that, you know, I think that Hochul is, uh, I mean, let's face it. Uh, this is how things are today. I think she's an unexciting candidate. Okay. Um, I think that, um, you know, she's got the, you know, the ties to, uh, Andrew Cuomo. And I don't think that's helpful. I think, um, that she is and always, and has been, very middle of the road as far as Democrats are concerned. So I'm not sure that she excites that New York City base, you know, uh, enough to get them out. I think that on the other hand, people who might be more inclined to vote Republican in any instance, and then some others um, are going to be pretty juiced to go to the polls and vent their anger. You know, you've got inflation as it hasn't been in some people's lifetime, really. I mean, you know, um, you've got gas prices being what they are. You've got an unexciting um, president. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like, let's that's how things go today. This is a world of like, you know, TV and, you know, I mean, look how popular Trump was just by making fun of people publicly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've, so you've got Joe Biden, you've got Kathy Hochul and, um, you know, economic circumstances that are not in their favor of incumbents. And, um, you know, I think that all of these things add up to an actual challenge here in New York that we are, you know, you may be saying that that enrollment doesn't really speak to. I mean, I think, you know, it's getting out the vote. And I think that getting out the vote, vote is going to be a real tough uh, hill to climb for Democrats in this election. And it's the opposite on on the other side. Yeah. Really. Um, Chrissy, Chrissy, you mentioned gun control. Um, we had an editorial this week that talked about the fact that at a time when that is a topic that is back at the forefront 
of a conversation on a national level. And at a time when uh, Governor Hochul actually did get some legislation through with some new gun control measures in New York State, Lee Zeldin in particular has been very blunt in his messaging. Uh, He hasn't said much, but what he has said has been very broadly um, pro guns and and without a lot of nuance. I, f- I wonder how much that will, uh, you know, it's certainly not going to affect them in the Republican primary, I don't think. But I wonder how much that'll take a toll when we get to the general election. That's a really good question, Joe. Um, you know, Zeldin has, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but he's kind of like boasted or, you know, played up his A rating from the NRA, right? Yeah, he's very Second Amendment. Yeah. Um, And, you know, when we were talking about kind of like being tone deaf earlier, I think that, you know, with the recent, you know, tragic shootings, you know, Buffalo, Texas, you know, it's kind of like, what are you saying? What are you doing, man? Like, I mean, one of his tweets just recently was shall not be infringed. Yeah. And I think maybe he's appealing to those upstate New York voters, you know, like wasn't there even a a representative who was running in the Buffalo region who was ousted when he came out strongly in favor of gun control? But with it, with New York voters, is that a message that resonates really? I, well, I, I think, think I think it does. I, I think the, the Republican voters look, I, I, I mean, I, the 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 mass shootings don't affect the Republican voters stance on the Second Amendment much. They see it as more mental health issues, um, you know, other other avenues to try to address that rather than taking my guns away in, 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 in air quotes. I don't think that that comes into play at all in, 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 in this election because it's just, it, it's so divided now and so ingrained that, um, I, I look, I, I think you're seeing some action at, at the national level though, right now where there's, you know, there's some, it looks like there's gonna be some agreement on some, um, some gun control measures, but they're not, you know, they're they're not as powerful as they could be to you know to put it lightly and and I think you know I was I was in Western New York um, you know a, a few times over the last few months and you know it, it's it, it's hunting it's it's gun country you know in, in a lot of places and you know in, in the suburbs and the rural areas and and all that and and that specter of they're going to take your guns away is just always always there i think and I don't a lot of hunting with ar-15s up there is that i you know well sometimes you need a little help joe <laughs> <laughs> and that i'm also yeah. curious we were talking before we came on the air about the the january 6th committee hearings that are taking place right now and again i don't think any of this has any impact on on the primary that takes place um, this month. But as we head into the later in the summer, and if Lee Zeldin is the nominee and the general election de- campaign picks up, I wonder if that won't start to be a, a key part of the message on the Hopewell side is that Lee Zeldin was very much part of what took place on January 6th. I mean, he voted to, to try and throw back a, a couple of states' uh, electors to the state legislatures as part of that what's being described now by the committee as a fraudulent scheme i gotta think that's going to take some some toll on on lee's album i would hope but you know at the same time it's like i don't know where is this all going to go i mean it's sort of like you just sit there and you watch you know one big piece of news after another come out of there but it just doesn't seem like it's any more than just an exercise in in reliving the past you know unless the doj picks up and and decides to do some prosecution um you know it's it's being tuned out by the audience who doesn't want to hear it you know and um i think I the know. same thing was said about the watergate hearings though too um yeah but watergate contempt- was a different time where people you know where nixon realized that he had lost and stepped down i don't you know this this other side oh, is eventually. Learned, this, eventually, yeah, eventually. But- this i mean this side has learned to just dig in your heels and say you're lying you know yeah and, but you uh, know I, I i think it's really interesting if you go back and look at some of the contemporary uh, commentary while the Watergate hearings were happening. It's it's very similar to some of the things you're hearing uh, with these hearings. But it, that, of course, is no guarantee of anything. But 
just an interesting observation. I think we need to get Carl Bernstein on here next week. That would be great. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, he's an, he's an interesting guy to talk to, no question. So again, the, the gubernatorial uh, primary early voting starts today, uh, Saturday, uh, this weekend, and the, the final vote is on June 28th. So whichever party you're registered with, get out there and vote. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group, as is Annette Hinkle, who is on our panel today. Uh, we also have Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and uh, Christine Sampson from the East Hampton Star. And Chrissy, uh, let's talk about I, I thought it was kind of a cool thing that they're doing in East in, in uh, Amagansett, actually. Uh, East Hampton Town's looking to change some streetlights and they're looking for input from the public, right? Some streetlights, some 729 streetlights, to be exact, throughout East Hampton Town. Um, and they're, they're two different temperatures. So the town put samples on Atlantic Avenue in Amagansett near the check-in hut. Um, so what you do is you go down to those um, those light uh, those light poles, and you can scan a QR code with your phone that will lead to a survey. And you answer the survey: which one do you like, a twenty seven hundred Kelvin or a three thousand Kelvin light? They're the same wattage, but they have different. So the town says provide different benefits, right? But I don't think they're kind of like also paying attention to the dark skies issue. Uh, we had a letter recently um, saying that there, the amount of blue light in the light source has environmental health and night sky implications. You can't see the stars. You know, there's light pollution emanating, mm. um, you know, different, different issues pertaining to that, which haven't really been brought up by the town. That's really That's interesting. Good. Yeah. I, I wondered about that because they're, I know that with uh, the dark sky, dark sky stuff, a lot of it has to do with trying to project the light downward instead of letting light pollution leak upwards. But I think what you're saying is there's at least some folks who are saying that's not enough, that it's about the nature of the light that's coming out of the light post. Yep, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's Have you been down there yet? To um, I live in Amagansett and I'm ashamed to say I haven't, but um, I'll do that this weekend. It's it's you gotta go pretty pretty late, apparently. You've gotta you gotta wait till it gets really dark to notice the <laughs> as past the, my the bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a deal where it's like I know with some lights you have uh bright light, bright white versus uh like a more yellow light. Is it that kind of thing, or is it just a matter of intensity? Yeah, I, I'm not hundred percent sure to speak to that, but the other thing that the town brings up is that the LED, they're LEDs. And that would um, reduce the cost of electricity that the town uses. Um, so and, and replacement costs, right? Yeah, they last a lot longer than than typical lights. And so they, the quality of the light, you know, in Hawaii, they use those sodium vapor lights that are kind of orangish in hue. And the reason they do that, especially on the Big Island, is that they have all those observatories on top of Mauna Kea, and that apparently the the color of the light can make a huge difference into um, being able to see up into the dark skies or not. So those are more old fashioned type lights. Right. And I think no, I don't think so. I don't think oh, so. I, mean, I, I think that, that's what they're replacing, though, is the sodium lights. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, you know, but they are interesting. They have sort of like a, a orangish yellow hue, which I guess doesn't interfere with your, um, you know, with the it makes the, the brightness is not as intense. That's so. interesting. Yeah. The town wants to people to, you know, gauge like visibility for drivers, safety for pedestrians, you know, what the glare is, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and there's also a decorative component where you can choose the type of fixtures, which are the lamps that hold the bulbs. Hmm. So there's, you know, even even the aesthetics of it. I know that the intensity of the light when you're driving can make a huge difference. And I'm thinking of like when I've driven along the southern state or the lie when mm -hmm. they're doing night work and they have those oh, day right. for night lights that they put up that it feels like somebody's pushing on my eyeballs when i drive mm -hmm. past them and it's it can be really distracting when you're driving i don't think i don't think they're doing anything like that but uh i i have to wonder if this is just folly that you put up a couple of street lights and ask people to vote and you're you're gonna you're guaranteed to make half the, i almost promise you 
that that the split will be significant and you're you're guaranteed to make a lot of people very unhappy by doing that i mean there's, i love the idea of there's some people that are afraid of the dark and they only want super super bright lights you know and then there are those of us who like to let our eyes adjust to the dark and i hate when i get intruded with bright bright light so um yeah it's gonna it's gonna become down to a fight you're right <laughs> i think that's true and chrissy i i'm sort of intrigued because i lots of the towns and villages have changed over to the led lights just because of the massive amounts of savings on on the electric use um but i wonder that the towns both of them have really made um good progress towards the dark sky stuff and it sort of feels like this that didn't come into consideration as much as I thought it would with these these lights, it sounds like. Yeah, I tend to agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've been pushing the dark skies legislation for years and years and years, and you would yeah. think that street lights would be the one time you'd really want to make that a priority. I so, think that if, like, people can't even wrap their heads around tree lighting at their houses and estates, you know, like, that they might not understand the point of the streetlight survey. Yeah, I, I do. I do notice in in um, in looking at the story that that Mike Wright wrote for for us that um, because the LED lamps are more modern, the town will have the ability to utilize some features, including raising or lowering the relative brightness of the lights um, at, at certain times of day. And he notes that it's a feature some upstate towns have used to combat loitering outside bars late at night. So so maybe there's a way that, you know, they can be brighter early on, you know, during during the evening and then kind of lower them around, you know, two o'clock in the morning or whatever. You know, you know what's for interesting? For the stargazers or, or whatever. I, I, read I, don't that, know. I read that line in Mike's story and I didn't get a chance to ask. So how do you discourage people from hanging around outside a bar with the lights? Do you turn them up or do you turn them down? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm not I, sure. would, I was assuming turning them down, but maybe that uh, maybe that makes shenanigans a little more comfortable if they can hide, <laughs> and hide behind the dumpsters. Actually, you, know, you turn them up really bright and you play classical music. Exactly. That's you work know, for 7-Elevens. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, they're going to be streetlights that you can drive past and yell out, hey, Siri, and you can change the <laughs> the color of them. We'll be able to make them flash different colors like uh, like all of our lights do now. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, uh, Christine Sampson from the East Hampton Star, and Ed Hinkle from uh, the Express News Group. Um, so Denise, um, we wanted to talk about water quality. It's always an important issue uh, for every community on the East End. And there is some new activity taking place at the federal level that may have some impact locally. Yeah, I mean, this, this week, the uh, Federal Environmental Protection Agency finally kind of uh, got with the program, I think, um, with regard to uh, the chemical, the group of chemicals that known as PFAS, uh, PFAS. I'm not going to even try to pronounce the uh, oh, come on. chemical name, <laughs> but um, PFAS covers two other kinds. It's so confusing, and people get their eyes crossed, and I do too. But PFAS includes PFOS, PFOS, and PFOA, PFOA. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, the state of New York adopted uh, what they touted as like the toughest standards in the country for uh, drinking water uh, levels, like maximum contaminant level levels with these, as well as with um, 1,4-dioxane, <clears throat> which is a completely different kind of, kind, of, kind of chemical, but also in that group of what they call emerging contaminants that are recognized as contaminants, but didn't have, you know, regulations in place. <clears throat> EPA does not regulate how much can be in any given amount of water, but they had these lifetime health advisory uh, advisories in place, and it was set at 70 parts per trillion. Um, and uh, they have just announced this week that they are lowering that to um, much lower levels, four parts per quadrillion. 
mm. which is basically undetectable. So right. they're essentially adopting or well, it's not a standard yet, but they're going to and they said they're going to do this. Um, they're adopting this advisory that is saying, you know, it's got to be kind of a non-detect standard um, going forward. And um, that means that when they adopt, when they actually add this to their contaminant list, which they're going to promulgate, they're going to publish a rule in, in this fall. And they, they say that it will probably be adopted in a year, a year from this fall, so fall 23. Um, that's going to actually set a maximum contaminant level for these chemicals, as well as two others, including these, this other class of chemicals known as Gen X chemicals. Um, oh. And um, yeah, so it's just, you know what? It's a bunch of nasty stuff that doesn't belong in our drinking water. That's yeah, <laughs> the exactly. bottom line. And um, so they, they, this is important because even, even though these are just advisories, they are they can be used by municipality intention for this is for them to be used by municipalities and water companies to set standards. And, um, you know, it's going to be difficult for uh, the Suffolk County Water Authority or the other you know places that provide uh, drinking yeah. water. Uh, that's that's going to be tough to get to those levels, I would think. They, they, did, they weren't even testing for for right. the PFOS uh, until a couple of years ago. They didn't even have the capability to test for it. And um you know, they are right now really scrambling to try to meet that 10 part per trillion level that the state put in place. I mean, in R the Riverhead Water District and, and Suffolk County Water Authority, they have um, kind of deferrals like, you know, they can they've been given more time to to meet these standards by the state health department because these chemicals are like everywhere. They're in so many different products. And they persist in the environment. That's what makes them dangerous. And they're hazardous to human health. And, um, you know, so regulators are saying we got to deal with this. And uh, the EPA, fortunately, is putting some money where this regulation is. <laughs> and they're through, through the uh, there's five billion dollars through the Federal Infrastructure Act that got adopted and signed into law, which is uh, set aside for uh, dealing with. Um, the PFAS, PFAS contamination, but uh, you know that's really kind of a drop in the bucket when it comes to the, this contamination because it's so widespread. Um, Riverhead, one of Riverhead's public wells is has a PFAS contamination. There's the contamination at the uh, Epcal site, the former Grumman operation. There's they found PFAS in the groundwater at the uh, defunct landfill in Riverhead at 10 times the levels allowed by New York state. There's another area in Calverton near industrial uses that, you know, but it's not even just near industrial. It's like, it's in a lot of products that we all use every day. So yeah, and we, you know, we, uh, we had the issue at near Gabreski airport in West Hampton and, and Chrissy, yeah, Chrissy and Wayne Scott, the, where they had the firefighting, uh, drills that they think that the firefighting foam may have may have mm -hmm. been the source yeah. of contamination. Yep. So, uh, you know, it's a big problem. It's widespread. And when we are, you know, living atop our source of drinking water, it, you know, the aquifer, it's it's a big problem for all of us on Long Island. I wonder what, you know, it, it'll be interesting in the coming weeks to, to maybe talk with the Suffolk County Water Authority in particular. And we, of course, like I live in Hampton Bays and we have our own water authority that provides our water here. Which 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 actually had a well that, that was contaminated. That's and, right. And yes. Put in filters and but I wonder what the the technology is. Can you get down to those levels with the current technology and the filters? Because you know you 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 assume that when you're filtering out certain substances, you're not getting to zero. You're and this sounds like you're basically going to have to get to zero. Um, I wonder what that's going to take and what it's going to cost to to do that. It's going to be hard and it's going to cost a lot. That's my prediction. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, you know, if it, it's a level that you can't even detect with current technology, chances are it's going to be that much harder to attain that. You know, um, I know in, in Wayne Scott, the um, Subcounty Water Authority actually expanded its its area to include some of the homes that were on wells in that community. But Bill, I'm curious, uh, the thing that comes to mind, and again, as a Hampton Bays resident, one of the debates that's been going on for years is whether the Hampton Bays Water Authority should um, 
turn its system over to the Suffolk County Water Authority. If you face a serious upgrade to try and reach these new EPA levels and it's going to cost a million dollars, you know, I'm just plucking figures out of the air. Uh, it might be enough to to change the calculus that might make that more make more sense. I don't know. I mean, they they were talking about that for for a couple of years and a few years, and I think the the community um, was was very clear that they wanted it to maintain they wanted to maintain the local control over 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 the water authority. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, does does the cost then become prohibitive to do that? Um, perhaps, but I'm thinking, you know, a lot of people in Hampton Bays are willing to cough up, no pun intended, a couple extra bucks to, uh, to, to keep that local control. And, you know, it's not just local control. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it's local, local residents are employed by the, by the, by the authority and, you know, and, and, and all that. And there's just a lot of those considerations. It's, we've had conversations on this show before about it, that it's like, mm-hmm. it's like local fire departments and local ambulance companies. There's, there's a, a pride of ownership, um, you know, for the local community and local community members, um, in, in that, that I, I think is hard to, uh, hard to give up. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if you get on public water, aren't they getting the water out of the same aquifer that you get your well water from? And, you know, I don't understand how, if, if your water is contaminated, that going to Suffolk County public water is necessarily going to solve your problem since we're all basically getting our water from the same aquifer. You know, they treat it. These things are in pockets though, in the, uh, in the aquifer. So it depends, it really depends on where, the well is. I mean, uh, there's a well on Middle Road, um, one of two in what the water district designates as Plant Five in Riverhead, which is a couple of miles from where I live, um, and um, it's contaminated with PFAS. And I believe I was just going to try to look up to the exact amount, but I think it's a ten million dollar filtration system that the Riverhead. And that's the that's the difference. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And, it's and a lot of money. And, you know, Suffolk County Water Authority can can justify that. Uh, Hampton Bay's Water Authority, maybe not. And certainly somebody who has a home, you know, who's drawing water from a well. Uh, and we still have a lot of those folks left. Uh, they have no protection whatsoever. So I'm also intrigued that this is a this is a threat, uh, a health threat that we knew nothing about 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, Whoever heard of PFAS? I don't think we even had a conversation about it 10 years ago. And now suddenly it's crucial that we get it down to levels where it's basically undetectable to keep us safe. So that's a little scary. Makes you wonder what else is out there, huh? Exactly. And it makes you wonder what the long-term cumulative impact of having done nothing over those years because we didn't know we needed to uh, could have. So something to keep an eye on. We are basically out of time, folks. And, and uh, you know, we, I think there's a lot more topics to cover, but we always have next week. So uh, I want to thank our guests this week. Uh, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Annette Hinkle from the Express News Group. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you being here. Thanks Thank for having me. And thank you, Bill Sutton, my co-host. My pleasure, as always. As always, so I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group, and we will be back next week again with Behind the Headlines. I hope to see you then.